You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, conversations with artists and audience that explore the world of classical music like it was as normal and everyday as a loaf of bread, which it is. It's that normal. My name is John Jacob and podcast number 127 features saxophonist Jess Gillum, MBE, in conversation ahead of a tour her and the Jess Gillum Ensemble mount playing the music from her recent album release, Time. There are eight dates in the tour, which kicks off from the 26th of June. More details in the podcast show notes. The album, Time, is a glorious thing, a carefully curated album of music that spans multiple musical genres, featuring arrangements that put Gillam's innate musicianship front and centre. It's an album I've listened to a lot over the past year since its release. It's brought solace and joy and contentment. No small achievement for the saxophonist whose career has accelerated since her participation in the BBC Young Musician competition a few years back. In addition to playing, Jess fronts the hugely successful This Classical Life programme on BBC Radio 3, which on the 7th of July will go live on stage in front of an audience at the Royal Festival Hall. A busy time then because before her two concert appearances here at Croydon's Fairfield Halls with the London Mozart players later on today, she's also got half an hour scheduled in for a podcast interview with me. My opening question to you, the preparatory section of the interview, is if, uh, if you were to meet an alien and they were asking you what it was that you did, how would you explain to them what you do for a living? How would I explain to an alien? Um, I would say I play a piece of metal tubing and organise sound in a way that emotionally moves people somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I wasn't really expecting that. (laughs) It sounds really fun. (laughs) <laughs> um, they'd also want to know the alien would want to know and also you know they're obviously they're British and they're middle aged but the alien would want to know why you want to do that I want to do that because it makes other people see the world a bit differently makes them smile brings them a different kind of alternative reality although not as alternative as their alien existence would you feel slightly unsettled if I said that as a 48 year old I find it unnerving that someone half my age would just know that about music and say that about music with such confidence and such sort of this is what I do and this is why I do it because I remember myself at 24 and I didn't know what the hell was going on I also feel like that all the time I don't I don't know you know all of those things people ask who are you what do you stand for but there's one thing that I know for certain and that is that music has changed my life like from the moment I picked up saxophone now I can I can play it to a certain extent still learning all the time to a certain but, extent. <laughs> you know like, right. I, yeah I can see the difference that music can make and I think that's something to hold on to like in a world where we don't know that much for certain and everything's shifting all the time I can see that music can make a difference amongst your peers and your friends are you the one who is the most positive um I don't want you to name your friend. <laughs> yeah. Not all the time. I try and take an optimistic outlook, but sometimes it, it doesn't. I mean, do you find that they are coming to you for positive... I mean, because you, you exude positivity, and I suppose that's, that's the other thing that makes me go, hang on. 
how, how did I miss that lesson? So I'm wondering whether your friends come to you for <laughs> great folded arms. <laughs> Someone's feeling really uncomfortable. Do, do, do you see what I mean? Do, do they come to you for that, or is that... Or are all of your friends similarly positive? I think I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded by quite positive people, I think. Um, I wouldn't say that any of my friends come to me. I'd probably go to them for some grounding advice here and there, but I wouldn't say I'm particularly positive. Maybe I am. <laughs> it's, not that, it's not that I have an agenda. I don't, I don't have an agenda. Uh, do you find yourself... I'm sure you do, because we all do. do you, what is the thought that you constantly have to reframe in readiness for performance? Um, that that it mean, it, that music can mean everything and nothing. You do have to remember that at the end of the day, someone walks into a concert hall, you can, you can give them the, the magic, the, the, sm- the smile, but also you can't kill them with music. We're not a doctor, you know. It has to, you have to commit, but also step back and think actually for this is just sound if that does that if that makes sense you kind of and and in order to get that balance then you can't you can't take yourself too seriously there's a level of commitment but then you have to think okay this isn't it's not life completely life-changing that means you're someone who can deal with disappointment well um can i deal with disappointment well yeah i think music learning an instrument builds up a sense of resilience and of um, identity where you kind of have to believe in in what you're saying and challenge it. Uh, when I look at you, I think of Sheku and Nicola Benedetti. I suppose I think of uh, a stable of Decca artists. Uh, and actually, when I reflect on that more and more, I see a generation, a new generation of artists. Uh, I know uh, uh, Nikki is slightly older, but... First of all, do you see that too? Maybe you don't. Um, and what responsibility do you think that generation of artists has today? Um, I think the work that Nikki's doing is amazing and I've found that inspiring since I was really young. And Sheku also, the thing that inspires me the most about him is that he is just the most humble, unassuming person I think I've ever met. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met, but so genuinely nice, it's unbelievable. I, I'm a little bit disconcerted. You know, it's like no, 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 I'm not, I'm not at all. It's, it's. I find it so inspiring the way that he is just so. Um, hell, you can't. I don't know how to. He's just so yeah, unassuming, and then comes out with this incredible artistry and sound and thoughtfulness, and he's just. Yeah, I find that so inspiring every time I see him. Um, but I think we all, as musicians, have a responsibility to be generous with with what we've what's been passed to us to to kind of share what music can can do. But do you recognise that sort of? Oh, maybe you don't. Maybe it's it's my perspective on a sector where uh, a new generation of musicians are present and visible in a way that I don't think they were visible before. You see, that, that's, that's my view. When I compare when I graduated to how things are now, there are a lot more younger musicians that are more relatable and more accessible. And I wonder whether you're aware of that. Um, slightly. I wonder if the digital world has something to do with it, where we do 
communicate to audiences in a different way. But also, I think um, I play an instrument that doesn't comfortably fit into a traditional model of what a classical career would look like. So with playing the saxophone comes with it a series of questions and um, ideas about where you can fit in and what you have to do. So I think with that, the saxophone brings with it a kind of enigma about where it's... Does that make the saxophone baggage then? Is that is that how you sort of... Because it doesn't fit in with what would be seen as conventional ensembles? Um, I wouldn't see it so much as baggage as... Um, I think it's an exciting opportunity. It's a young instrument. History is still being made. But then, you know, it can amplify some of those insecurities about, you know, should I be here? I, I, you know, all of those things. But then it's... I, I find it... Um, I mean, I, I love the instrument for, for kind of what it stands for. It's versatility, it's ability to mould in and out of different situations. And it's, it's yeah, it's magnetising sound, really. Are you, in fact, like your instrument? I, I would say in that respect, a, a bit, a bit. But I think it's taught me rather than me that being my actual idea. I've been kind of made to think in that way by the instrument. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's got a mind. <laughs> wow, wow, OK, you're really scaring me. Um, uh, when you look back on your career to date, what has surprised you the most? Um, what has surprised me the most? I see you looking wistfully into the middle. This suggests that you don't often be get asked these questions. No, no, none of these oh, questions. Okay. They're, they're not standard questions at all. What has surprised me the most? Um, probably that... that um, I don't really understand why people aren't always open-minded. I, I don't really... It surprises me that people shut down certain genres of music or shut down certain ideas simply for the fact that they're not traditional. Don't know, I don't really get that. Yeah. Uh, so you bring a curiosity to your practice? Uh, yeah, to, to life, why wouldn't you want to yeah, know absolutely. about... Yeah. I'm, I'm inclined to agree, so I think, you know, for all the discussions around how do we make classical music more accessible, you know, what programme notes do we need to write, does there need to be a podcast, blah-de-blah, I just think, actually, if you just sit in the auditorium and just listen, that's all you've got to do. Uh, and that and I'm told by a lot of marketing people that that kind of curiosity is unusual. See, I, I wouldn't agree that it is unusual in, in young children. They're the most curious minds around, I think. What is that? What's that sound? And if we were able to put classical music, orchestral music, written music, whatever we call it, in front of their ears at an early stage, I think we'd lose a lot of these questions around the the preconceptions and all of the ideas that it's not accessible because it would be fostering a sense of curiosity from aged two, three, four rather than get to the age of 18 and classical music is suddenly uncool because that's what we're kind of told, not because we've sat in a hall and heard it. Uh, I'm, I'm momentarily distracted by another thing that I was primed to ask you. Um, I'm really sorry, that's really inappropriate. But what I need to ask you first of all was, when you were at school, were um, were you a prefect? I was. <gasps> but it wasn't, oh, no. It wasn't called prefect, it was called a lead learner. A lead learner? Well, and then we had, what did we have after that? We had, um, no, it was lead learner, and you got a different coloured tie. Did 
did he sit aside from everyone else in assembly? No, I, I, there were a lot of lead learners. <laughs> it was like half the year group. <laughs> right. Okay, everybody gets a prize. Uh, did he get a badge? Yep. Did you get a Blue Peter? You've got a Blue Peter badge, haven't you? I've got a Blue Peter badge. I can't remember what for. It's for something really random. I bet you didn't write in, did you? I didn't, <laughs> <laughs> didn't write in. <laughs> no, okay. And now I'm reminded that you are also an MBE. I am. What's very that surprising. Like? What is that like? It's very, very, very odd, actually. Very, I was so shocked receiving the news and just really touched, especially that this year that we've just had. People have done such selfless and amazing things in this year and the fact that somebody thought that I should be nominated for something that I've done was yeah I was really humbled by it I can tell by your face you you know the smile has sort of dropped a bit you do have that shocked look about you are you overlooking things are you just naturally self-effacing um very self-critical um I think you kind of have to be as a musician but um I I can see when I've tried to do a positive thing but I think intent is more often more important than output and I try and do a good thing and yet you have done so much and succeeded so much I mean like I think of the scratch orchestra I mean I looked at all of the stuff that you did during lockdown and thought she's a machine she's doing all of this stuff um was that just I need to have something to do with my time or 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 is that sort of a result of self-criticism um, I think a mixture. I'm not good at not being busy. Need to be active. Need to be active. Um, and I think that comes from my upbringing. Um, family with a very high work ethic, you know, brought up in a very hard working family. Yeah. Work at a tea shop. Yep. Mum um, and dad still have it and just work, worked, well, especially more so when I was younger, just worked all the hours under the sun. Um, everything to a really high standard, both perfectionists, you know. <laughs> it's like, so I think that's where the, my kind of work ethic and need to be busy has come from. But then at the same time, just um, an appreciation of what, of the, I mean, I said it at the time with the Scratch Oxford, but just the people just needed a bit of joy and something to be part of. And I thought if there's anything that I can do to try and help that, then I, ex- I expected maybe 50 people might. Yeah, you've got loads. You've got yeah. loads. Crazy, and you did most of the production. I mean, you didn't you didn't do the video production, but you certainly I I know that you were preparing scores and sort of manuscripts and and sending them out and putting things on websites and whatever. Yeah, I did a lot of the organisational um, side of things. I downloaded every single file, which took more time than I can tell you. Um, I didn't I didn't do any of the. This was there a boy where you thought why? At the, the three o'clock in the morning, that was the kind of thing of what am I doing? Um, but then we had an amazing team for actually putting everything together. Um, Jonathan Allen, who actually produced um, my last album, uh, said, Jess, he kind of, I, I told him what I was doing, and he said, Jess, what, what are you doing? Look, I'll help you. I'll help you. So he did it, and he did an amazing job. And there was a whole really generous team of people who stepped in and, and helped actually put the thing together. Um, but I did all the organisational side, yeah. <laughs> so, so also part-time arts administrator <laughs> in waiting. Uh, I want to ask you about time, which I have to say uh, I have listened to on a loop for most of lockdown. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's remarkable. Um, it's it's so carefully curated. 
I mean, I know it is a, an album which is meant to tell a story, but it, is, it strikes me as being carefully curated and really touching, and there are some remarkable tracks on it. How did you come to decide on those? Was that a straightforward process? Um, well, thank you. That's very kind. I'm glad you've enjoyed it. Um, it wasn't very straightforward. It took a long time, actually, to choose the music. It kind of grew out of um, where the bee dances, which I'd wanted to record after playing it in BBC Musician. So I knew that would kind of feature somewhere on the album. And then I wanted to explore the vocal side of the soprano, especially. Um, and I'd Helen Lewis at Decca, who was the um, A&R on the album, we spoke, and Fiona Pope also, we'd spoken about trying to capture this sense of time and um, the way that music can warp and, and change time as we listen, as a musician and as an audience. So it was, it took quite a long time to come up with a list and it was kind of like a jigsaw puzzle of, of pulling it together. Um, but I'm really glad you said it feels curated because that's what we were trying to achieve. But were, were they conversations and thoughts that you were having before COVID hit? Because, I mean, it, it, it came to my attention during lockdown, but my assumption was that that doesn't mean that it was made in lockdown. <laughs> no, we actually finished recording it about three weeks before the lockdown. Oh, was, So it was, to it was totally unrelated to what was happening. So conceptually, this had been drawn together before the yeah. idea that we would ever be... Yeah. I mean, um, do you look at, I, I look at that and think, <laughs> as someone who's interested in marketing, I think, oh, that's, oh my God, that's amazing. Uh, did, did, did you, did, were you thankful for the timing? I mean, it, because it landed really well, given what we all experienced. I think it, it took on a new, uh, because, so we'd finished all the recording and then all of the mixing and editing happened remotely. Um, so Jonathan, the producer and I, um, he was live, live feeding, live streaming his desk to my computer and we were in different rooms and then we were on WhatsApp video um, so that I could listen and, and make comments So, and then we were in lockdown so the, then it started to kind of take on a new um, feeling and meaning as we all lost all sense of, of time. And how, did it, how did it change for you in terms of meaning uh, in those first few, you know, in the, or rather in the last few weeks of production if you like, how did, how did that original idea shift in your head? when we all experienced this weird thing? In a way, I think it brought some clarity because it was exploring this sense of how music can change time, how um, the arcs of energy in a day, and they'd just gone. So it kind of brought that into focus and just listening to the, the, actual, um, the actual production and sound on it, trying to make it feel as... as um, so the listener could be as involved as, as possible in the sound itself. Um, it doesn't seem sentimental. It would be so easy for it to be sentimental. Um, I'm trying to think of a saxophone player who did a pop record in the 80s, you know, before you were born, Jess. Uh, and I can't remember... Um, oh. And it was like Moonlighting. It was the, it was the theme due to Moonlighting. Um, it could have been, sorry, this is probably, you're probably thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Um, what I'm saying is it could have been really sentimental. What struck me was that it wasn't sentimental at all. It was quite distanced. It was uh, almost neutral. It was presenting a neutral picture for all of us to sort of uh, interpret the way we needed. And one of the tracks that really did that well was um, actually 
Is it Transit of Venus? Transit of Venus. Yeah, Joby Talbot's. Oh, it's a, it's a joy. I know it was written for, t- uh, for the planets. Um, it was written for, he did um, a series of compositions, one a year for a year. And this was his uh, June piece. And one, he said one of the ones that just kind of came easily, just happened. But the way that, that somehow the music itself feels suspended, it, it, it's kind of, there's something quite special about that piece. Like, I can't really describe it, but it's, it, it manages to, to move and stay still all at the same time. And why Bjork? Because Bjork, that track, I've only ever heard at the end of very long parties when people (laughs) are chilling um, in the 90s. Uh, Why Bjork for you? Bjork, as a musician, generally, I find extremely inspiring. The way that the the music is always at the centre of what she does, but but there's this there's this spectacle, there's something bigger that she's trying to tell us. And I'd been reading and, and watching a lot of interviews with her and she'd been talking about um, music that can... Um, where the narrative is taken away and as a listener you're uh, brought into the sound to kind of look around it and experience it so that you kind of become part of the process. So you go into the sound and you might follow something through, but that, that it's... Um, she described it so beautifully. I can't remember how she did. But she's an artist. Yeah. She talks like an artist. Well, yeah. you know, when you report it. Yeah. It's and um, so she's talking about looking around the sound, and that was something that I wanted to explore on the whole album. So it felt fitting to have something by by her on it. And I really, really adore. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I love all of Anna Benedict's work, but uh, I really adore Bubblegum. I think it, I've got to say, I think it works really well in your arrangement as well as the MIO uh, video. But, you know, let's not criticise. Is that fun to play? Because it sounds like it's really tight and everyone's having a laugh. It was really fun to play. It was was quite difficult to put together. So it's originally Boomwhackers and it all turned to pizzicato on the string. So it was quite a play for the string Uh, players. You played as an ensemble. They're they're not separate. I mean, they're separate tracks, but did you play live as an ensemble? We did a mixture. Uh, Bubblegum was one of the ones we ended up multi-tracking a bit because we tried it and we thought this is going to be sound much. It was the production on that was more like a pop track than than the others which were in the room together. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, I loved all of it. And let's not, um, you know, I don't want to appear as though I'm risking my journalistic integrity by just completely <laughs> flattering you all the time. Uh, what strikes me about uh, that album, the one before, those from Sheku as well, is that curation seems to be the way forward uh, for introducing <clears throat> a range of genres. Uh, is that something that is important to you or is that sort of like an industry thing? As in pulling together different tracks, arranging, creating a sound world. Is curation something that is really important to you? It is something that's important to me, but I didn't know that it was important to me. It's just how I naturally approached the idea of putting an album together or a concert programme or um, listening to music, the way that we all curate our own... We're all curators in the way that we listen. Um, And... Yeah, it is something that's important to me, but I hadn't realised it until it was until I was doing it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you sort of both answered that question and also not answered it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're really good. You've been briefed really well. Uh, one final question, and you said earlier on that um, when you picked up the saxophone, it changed your life, which is lovely. But how did it change your life? I need detail, Gillam. I need detail. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't know it at that moment. 
Yeah. But I retrospectively, see. how do you yeah. change your mind? Yeah, completely, because... Um, so I picked it up when I was seven. Um, until that point, I'd been quite interested in... Until that point, I was seven. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, She's not precocious. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, like, until then, I remember being interested in... A bit in writing, but I can't... I don't have many memories before that point of being really engaged in something like I, and then I can't, someone asked me a question the other day that made me realise this but I don't have that many memories of being really feeling a part of something or feeling really engaged in something and then age seven that's when my like technical memory seems to begin of, I, I can and it sounds you know we hear people say all the time that the, the moment they picked up the instrument they fell in love and, and all those kind of things but I can um, there, I think you you do remember it. I can remember everything about it. The the how it how it felt physically. The kind of explosion of whoa sound. And I was lucky. I was really lucky to make a sound straight away. Because if I hadn't have made a sound instantly, I could have thought, oh, jump on the viola or something. That would have been. Awful. It would have been different. But yeah, and then. Um, didn't take it that seriously for the first few years I was in the carnival band everything was about we went up and down the country playing in carnivals and everything was about kind of um, community spirit bringing smiles to people it wasn't a formal exchange of audience quiet and, and performers on stage it was literally walking through streets and and playing together being together and then started having proper lessons when I was about 11 and taking it a bit more seriously from probably about age 13 14 um and then you had so your formative experiences <coughs> uh, in music between the ages of 8 and 11 were playing in carnival bands yeah wow yeah barracuda's carnival arts center in barrow and uh, i mean so we played um glasgow western festival at tens of thousands of people and there'll be and you know, it's like some of the biggest audiences I've ever played, age seven with the saxophone, dancing around the street in multicolored costume, you know, playing samba style. It's like, but that's it's what everybody does, isn't it? And in Cum- from Cumbria as well, you know. It's like, not very well from Yorkshire, but from Cumbria. <laughs> so yeah, that's how that was what I thought music was. was. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, okay. This is the final question, uh, and then I'll get out of here. Uh, what do you think you rely on? What do you think you rely on most in your work? Um, probably people. I am not great at spending time by myself. I'm practicing. I can do that. I'm doing something. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> but I'm, if I don't, if I don't see people for an extended period of time, I'm kind of. I had to do a quarantine um, coming back from Finland recently and I, I just thought oh, this is just I can't can't deal with this so 10 days in a hotel at Heathrow I was I was I wasn't even in a hotel I was in so oh, well I'm in the, uh, it's a long story I'm in the middle of moving house so I was at my mum and dad's house but I couldn't come off the top floor so they were downstairs because they were going to work so I was in the top floor quarantining and they were in the rest of the house 
and our mum would knock on the door, leave the meals outside the door, and eat it. I just thought, like prison. <laughs> yeah, I just thought I need need people that kind of social interaction. How inspiring people can be. I love. I, I'm fascinated by people's experience and changing the way that they communicate and interact, and that's what drives my like wanting to play is telling stories and I play for people. I don't think I'll play if I couldn't make a positive impact with people, I don't think. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. My name is John Jacob. Follow Thoroughly Good at Thoroughly Good on Twitter or Thoroughly Good Me on Facebook. Alternatively, follow Thoroughly underscore Good on Instagram.